So we gather together out of this love for this God who has given us grace so that we can be an expression of that same grace uh, to this particular neighborhood and wherever we find ourselves here in the city. And so that's what Storefront Church is about. And we've rented a retail space at 179th Avenue so that five days a week, we're going to be an expression of, of grace to those who just walk by and, and come in and as we engage uh, the community. That's, that's the hope for Storefront Church. Um, we have our, our core values as Christians. Uh, they're on our website. I won't go into there because it might be a little too confusing. But they're basic historic Christian uh, values. But they're values that we're going to live out through the storefront, who, which are sort of implications of those values. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And so last, uh, I think we've talked about uh, that our faith is accessible. That the faith that we have in, in God, we want to remove all the barriers so that people can actually hear and see what we actually believe and, and dismantle the things that they actually think uh, about Christianity that is maybe not true. Uh, and so we want to make our faith accessible and comprehensible uh, uh, to people so they can, they can really understand it. We also, uh, one of the other core values is that we believe that Christians should anticipate renewal in their lives. That if God has done a work of renewal in your own heart, then you have a right to think he's doing something more in and around me. And therefore to move into the world despite circumstances with a great degree of hope. You know, we don't always know what that looks like, but we know that God is a God of redemption. And therefore, he's using your life for something beautiful, something renewing here in, in, in the city or wherever you are. Uh, we talked last week about rediscovering interdependence. That's important in a community like ours, uh, which, is, which is so diverse. Rediscovering interdependence. And what that means is we believe that we are created in the image of a God who is profoundly interdependent. Not independent. This is a God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is interdependent upon each other, each of those particular persons. And therefore, I know that I can't, when I function out of my independence exclusively, that I'm not living as someone who's created in the image of God in all of my fullness. But I can look across the room, look across the aisle, across the street, and say, I have a lot of differences with this particular person, but I know I need that person. It is created in the image of God, just like God is. There's something of value and something of integrity uh, that that person that I need on his book. And so we believe that Christians are called to that kind of life uh, because we're created in that kind of God, in the image of that kind of God. Today, uh, building on that, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a multi-ethnic community. What does it look like to be a community of people in which multiple ethnicities are celebrated and represented in that particular community. And there's a flip side to that, and that's this idea of compassionate justice. Now, when we think about multiple or multi-ethnic communities, I think we have a sense of what that means, but what is compassionate justice? Well, this is what you read on our website. It means this, that we believe the pursuit of justice in a beautiful but broken world is absolutely necessary. And yet, our pursuit of justice is often very fallen and broken that when we pursue justice, what we're really seeking is some kind of revenge. But if you're a follower of Jesus, though you long to see the world set uh, to a proper order, you know it's done not through revenge, but through redemption, through renewal, by means of grace. And so that's what we mean by uh, compassionate justice. 
And therefore, we want to seek to create leaders in this church that are not just peacekeepers. You know, peacekeepers are like, you stay on this side, you stay on this side. We're not going to talk about our differences at all. But peacemakers. And peacemakers are those who enter into conflict. They're the firemen, right, who run into the buildings. That's their instinct. Why? To bring safety, right? To, to help, to, uh, to, to restore. So we want to be peacemakers who apply Jesus' teachings to some of the most complex relationships, the most difficult circumstances, and to the systems that may be created beautifully or actually fairly broken. So that's what it means for us to be thinking about compassionate justice. We'll talk about that, but right now I want us to be thinking about multi-ethnic communities. Okay? And let's just think about that through a passage that I don't know how you avoid it. And that's Ephesians 2. Okay? So I think we have it here, but how do we get to Ephesians 2, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. Thank you. Galatians and Ephesians. All right. So Ephesians 2, I'm going to start with verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing from prison to a multi-ethnic church. And he says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Uh, I'll keep going. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built. <clears throat> and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him... You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and, and pray before we begin our teaching. Heavenly Father, in the passage it says here that Jesus came and preached peace to the city of Ephesus. And we know, though, Lord, that Jesus never went to Ephesus. And so what does it mean that he preached peace to that community? Lord, I pray that by the power of His Spirit, that same Spirit that came and ministered to that, that community, uh, that brought peace to them in the midst of hard conversations, that you minister to us too here in New York City, in this church along the High Line, to this group of people. 
Help us process the reality of your word in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's, as we talk about this passage, let's just remember, Jews and Gentiles, they're the biblical equivalent of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Jews and Gentiles, there is never, sorry, some of you don't know that expression. Uh, Hatfields and McCoys are an American, uh, or two communities in American history that hated each other. And they fought for decades, if not longer. Um, and so the Jews and the Gentiles were some of the most antagonistic uh, communities the world has ever known. And yet Paul is saying that they've been brought into one family in Jesus. They become a multi-ethnic family in Jesus Christ. And so let's ask just a couple of questions here. Why a multi-ethnic church? What is a multi-ethnic church? And how do we learn to become more like this kind of community? How do we learn to become more uh, like a multi-ethnic church? Because the first, why a multi-ethnic church? And I think it's right to ask from my own cynical heart, let's ask this question. Why a multi-ethnic church now? Why a multi-ethnic church now? I, that's coming out of a cynicism and a skepticism within my own heart about motivations for why in 2022 in New York City, in a country that's very divided politically, and one of the reasons we're so divided politically is because of race issues. Why is a white male pastor in a predominantly white male-driven denomination, are we so, in, or am I so intent on having a multi-ethnic community? I would say one thing, and this is probably a little bit off the cuff, is because I married somebody who's not white. And part of that experience is saying, oh, positively, there's something I don't know about the world. There's a culture that just does something different. Maybe it's better, sometimes it's better, it's always challenging, but it's something different. And so on one level, when I got a taste of that, I also realized there's more good things where that comes from. And, why, and that's part of why I think God brought Susan into my life. But from the cynical perspective, I think there's, excuse me, there's real reasons why Christians should desire a multi-ethnic church, but there are some reasons that as we pursue it, we really need to be careful about because they're not good enough reasons to actually do this, because the work is so hard. And the things that I'm gonna mention are not strong enough emotions for us to actually do the work that's required. And those things, those three things are guilt, fear, and a desire to be relevant. Those are easy to slide into, especially if you're a person like me and you've had my particular background. You know, guilt is something I think is actually a mechanism of God that helps unsettle the soul, that pricks the conscience, that says there's something uh, that maybe you need to investigate a little bit more. And, if, and as a white person in America, if you've not thought that, you need to. You need to consider it a little bit. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe the people around me have something I actually need to hear. Right? And yet, guilt is not a strong enough motivation to plant and pursue a community like, like this. Another uh, aspect is fear. You know, the Bible talks about fear in a couple of different ways. We're meant to fear the Lord, and yet we're not meant to worry about tomorrow, right? But we live in a fear-driven culture. 
And New York City may be the heart of that. You know, we live in a culture, if you don't believe the right things, then you'll be shamed, you'll be canceled, uh, you'll be shamed to death. You know, people are led to suicide because people have been so shamed for their particular beliefs. And it's, there is a fear that can come with, especially being a church planter here in New York, that we could be labeled a racist or, or any other kind of, you know, derogatory term. But living in fear of that is not a reason to plant a multi-ethnic church. Neither is the, the desire to be relevant in a culture. Cultures shift, they change all the time. We want to, as a church, be accessible. We think Christianity is absolutely relevant. But we also know the desire to be relevant can also like bring us into areas in which we, we go against our own beliefs in the gospel. So none of those three things are reasons why to plant a multi-ethnic church. Uh, Jamar Tisby is a black theologian, um, and he says this about guilt, but I think it applies to all three. He says, while guilt has its place, this emotion will hardly give churches the determination they need to persevere through the difficulties, difficulties of becoming a multi-ethnic church. So what is our primary motivation? The primary motivation to do a multi-ethnic church does not come from me. It comes from God. And it comes from passages just like this. Multi-ethnic churches have always been part of God's plan, and they always, they always will be. And you can see that there in verses 14 and 15. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, or I don't know if we can pull it up uh, here, but I'll go ahead and read verses 14 and 15. Um, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he and which he put to death their hostility. So his purpose was, was to do what? Was to create one new humanity out of two. Now you might think that what that means is that in creating a one new humanity, that he strips the cultures of their distinctions. That he, that he, he makes all the cultures uh, neutral under the cross or in, within Christianity. But that's not actually what that means and that's not actually what the Bible says. And at the most basic level, let me explain it this way. Christians believe we're created in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of those persons are distinct in the one being. God does not become let. Like the Father, is, His distinctions are not removed. The Son's distinctions are not removed. The Spirit's distinctions are not removed to make God more godly. And culture's distinctions are not removed when coming into a Christian community in order to make us more Christian. Does that make sense? That the motivation for doing this is biblical, but like the heart motivation is a joy in both the unity and diversity of what it is to be created in the image of a, a God who's diverse and unified. That's a lot to think, right? We believe in a God who is three persons in one, three distinct persons, three distinct characters. Right? In one being. And what Paul is saying is that 
to embody that in a community is one of the greatest expressions of the love and the power of God in the world. And who does he take on to do that? Does he do that within just the Jewish culture? To some degree. Does he do it just in the Gentile culture? To some degree. But he says, I'm going to take on the biggest project known in history. Jews and Gentiles, and watch me work and honor both cultures and purify both cultures, strengthen both cultures under the cross. And to see the harmony between the two, distinct, yet unified in the world. See, there's, we don't plant churches like this out of fear or guilt or desire to be relevant. We do it out of a joy because we're creating the image of a distinct and unified God. And to live out of that is to know what it is to be alive, what it is to be human. To be somebody who's creating the image of God amongst those who are creating the image of God. Okay. And you, that's why he's able to say, you were both, you were once foreigners and strangers, but now you're fellow citizens. Now, is that just a unique thing that's happening in Ephesus? We should not believe that. That's not just one example. It's maybe you might say our uh, precedent here. And I would say that probably Paul, every church he planted was a multi-ethnic church. Why? Because he's a Jew who's going to the Gentiles and saying, come with me. Let me show you this God who's, who's made this culture his people. So from the start, in the DNA, they're multi-ethnic. But it's also our future. Whether we embrace this idea now, you will embrace it if you're a Christian in the future. Why? Revelation 7 says this. After this, this is the Apostle John, says at the end of history, he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What are you seeing? A diverse group of people united together in worship. So from the beginning of Christianity to the end of time, you're going to have a multi-ethnic church. I believe we're called to a multi-ethnic church. And here's the final reason. We live in a multi-ethnic community. We live in a diverse community. And we're, if we are going to be a part of this community, we're going to look like this community. God's going to do what he will with us. He's going to strengthen, purify, and sanctify this body. And that means that this church is going to change. It's going to change. You can tell. Well, I want to get into the second point too, much, too quickly, so I don't want to do that. But let me just say this. Laman Sinai was a missiologist. And what missiologists do is they study the spirit of God throughout human history and how Christianity has moved and how it where it's been successful and where it's, been, where it's failed. And he talks about what Christianity looked like as it moved through Africa. And what he saw was where it failed was when, Christian, when Africans became Christians and they looked more like Europeans. But where it thrived was when the Spirit of God grabbed hold of them and they got the gospel. They didn't become more like Europeans. They became more like, they became more African. And this is what he said. And basically he said, well, what he says, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that, 
After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. So we need other cultures. We need God to bring other cultures into our lives because it makes us, they need us to be distinct. We need them to be distinct. And all of this together helps us understand what it is to be created in the image of God and to, to live as those who are created in the image of God together. And so we need to do that for this neighborhood. So that's why. But let's ask what is the multi-ethnic church? I'm going to just give you a basic definition. It's not my definition. This is from a guy named uh, Cole Brown. Cole Brown, white pastor in Portland, who planted a lot of multi-ethnic churches in, in the urban uh, city center of Portland and has planted some churches in Mexico, uh, Mexico City. And this is a good definition for us. I don't know that it's the be-all, the end-all, but it's a good working definition for us. This is what he says. He says, I believe multi mature multi-ethnic churches, uh, I believe a, a mature multi-ethnic church is a family of people of different cultures learning to confront and destroy barriers that the world has placed between us. This work requires that leaders acknowledge the unique experiences and challenges of each group and lead the church to understand one another and carry the particular burdens of their brothers and sisters. So here's the, the significant piece. It's a family of people of different cultures learning to confront and destroy barriers that the world has placed between us. We can be a multi-ethnic church and still be a multi and, and still be a monocultural church. We can, if you look around this room, you might go, "Oh my goodness, what a multi-ethnic church!" And yet, we can be a multi-ethnic church within a dominant culture that all of us defer to that dominant culture's culture. Does that make sense? We can be a, a multi-ethnic church that lives within a dominant culture, and we all sort of defer to the dominant culture's culture. And that's what we actually do as Storefront Church for now. What do I mean? I'm a white pastor who has a very white European Protestant uh, belief in education. So our liturgy comes from Europe. I love it. I believe it's godly from God, right? I love it. Our hymns. Are, are from a particular region, location, history. I love them. I love them. Uh, we've chosen this space for a particular reason. Uh, I live in this neighborhood for a particular reason, right? But as we become more like this neighborhood, we're going to look different. Um, our songs are going to be different. Our liturgy is going to change. The leadership's going to change. Uh, the food on that table, I, which I love, but I hope there's more. And I hope it, there's different tastes over there. It's all going to change by God's design with our help. And that means that you and I are going to have to be patient and tough and resilient and open. Right? Why are you have to be patient and tough? Because peacemakers have to be tough in confronting things they don't want to confront. About ourselves, about cultures that we live in. You know, to be a, a person who is, brings about renewal, you can't sit on the sidelines. But you enter into the game in grace. And so we're going to change. We're going to grow. We're going to be a little different. Now, does that all sound like a bunch of liberal, godly goop? It could. It could. It could just sound like, if you're here, you could just say, I know where this guy is at. 
you know, like this is just, you know, liberal nonsense. And it could be that if it weren't in the Bible. That definition is a paraphrase of Ephesians 2. This is, you know, uh, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? He says that Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, came into the world and he broke down a wall of hostility, uh, making two uh, communities at war with each other one. Now, the wall of hostility in the, in the New Testament is a real thing. In the temple, there was a wall. And that wall was a wall that separated Jews from Gentiles. And Gentiles couldn't go past this particular wall into the, into the place of worship. Right? There was a barrier there. And Paul's in prison. The reason he's in prison is because he was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles past this wall. And in other places, that's not what actually happened at all. I didn't do that, but he's saying the wall of hostility that you still look to has actually been removed in Christ. That wall has come down. Do you know that? Do you realize that? And there are walls between the communities in this neighborhood and communities all over the world that are less firm, you might say, than, than that one. But if that wall can come down, these walls can come down too. What was the wall? The wall was sort of an embodiment of the law. The law of God. Now the law of God in the Bible was a positive restriction for freedom. You know what a positive restriction is? A positive restriction is don't do this because it's good for you. Right? So in the, in the Garden of Eden, there's one law. You know that, right? And the law is don't eat of this tree. And that was a good thing. Don't eat of this tree. This entire universe is yours. Just don't eat of this tree. They couldn't do it. They failed. And what that meant is all their relationships to the law changed. So now they didn't just see the law as a potential positive freedom. The law always now was a negative, a negative regulation. And so the word of God, which is life-giving, which is a path to freedom, therefore became... Uh, enmity, and a sign of enmity. They couldn't keep it. It created enmity between them and God and enmity between them and others. And being a kind of community that was sort of upholding this law, the surrounding nations looked to Israel with hatred because they would never engage with anybody else. And Paul is saying that Jesus came and brought peace to you by removing this wall. Now here's, here's the interesting piece for me. How does God come in and, and bring about justice here to two communities that are at war, the two communities that are failing humanity, failing each other? How does he bring peace? Does he come and he smite them? No. What does he do? He comes and it says he takes the law into himself. He takes the enmity into his own self and out of the compassion of the heart of God, he nails himself to the cross. Does the world need justice? Yes. Does the world need renewal? Yes. How does it come about? By smiting each other? No. By taking, taking it upon ourselves. See, that's what we mean by compassionate justice. That's what Jesus did on the cross. By removing by in, in removing this this wall. Uh, 
So now we can love, now, now we have, and so, sorry. So now, by way of the cross, our relationship to God and to the law has changed. When we as Christians look to the law, we don't look to it to justify ourselves. We look to it and say, this is a path to freedom for us because Jesus has made it so. We look to it and we trust it. It's not a, a source of enmity. Now we see how much he loves us and what he's willing to do to make us to, to bring freedom into our lives. So what's the common ground for a multi-ethnic community? In a community that has almost nothing in common, you might say, the common ground would be the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the salvation for, for common ground. Uh, now let me just give this brief charge here. There are people in this room that when we think about compassionate justice, when we think about forging relationships of, within a multi-ethnic community, there are people in this room that can avoid that conversation. There are people in there in this room um, who can't avoid this conversation. And there are people here that won't avoid this conversation because they're, they feel called to it. But I believe what the scriptures teach and what Storefront stands for is that if you're a Christian, you mustn't avoid this conversation. You mustn't. Race issues are a plague on humanity. They're a plague on humanity. And one of the most powerful uh, antidotes to that is restoring relationships relations across racial barriers. You want people to see God, believe in God? Do that. Do the impossible. Or open yourself to allow Him to do that through you. So how do we become a church like that? Do we just roll up our sleeves and keep going? To some degree, yeah. But Paul says at the very top, he says two things. He says remember. Remember. And one of the primary ways for us to be that kind of people is to remember what God has done for us. Remember that we were once separated. If you're a Christian, you know at one time I was separated from God. Remember that once you were a foreigner. At once you were without hope uh, in the world and without God. At once you were far off, but now you've been brought near. And what that means is, if you're a Christian, you need to get near. You need to get near to people. People who are not like you. So that you can see what's beautiful about them and be changed, have your soul expanded, right? Uh, that means that you're going to have to extend yourself. You're going to have to change your schedule. You have to get outside of your comfort zone. The world needs you to do that. I've been reading a lot of John Stock lately. John Stock, maybe some of you know him, some, some of you don't. I would say, you know, Billy Graham, John Stock, C.S. Lewis. Why John Stock more influential than all of them? in the 20th century. Uh, he really did change the world. And John Stott was this guy who was a, uh, you know, a British theologian, preacher, a very humble man, really did not seek ambition for himself. As he got older, he started to travel around the world. He left himself, left London out of this very comfortable setting, and he began to go around to Africa and to Spain, or not to Spain, uh, to Central America and to Asia, and he went and he listened to them. And he began to change. Why did he change? Just by listening? No, he began to change by listening and going back to the Word of God. And saying, and began to be taught about the Word of God by these other people. That's how important it is. And as you read his writing, 
he began to talk more about not just a vertical relationship with God, but a vertical and a horizontal relationship with God as well. We need to do that. That's what it means to get near. And that also means that part of remembering is that in order to reconcile, that we need to repent. I need to repent. Everybody needs to repent. There's a movie, and I'll just close this. There's a movie called Spotlight. Spotlight's a movie about uh, a story, a real story that took place where the Boston Globe did an investigation on sexual abuse within the church in Boston. And they saw that there was a massive cover-up that didn't just take place in Boston. It took place all over the world in which the church uh, uh, protected those who were preying on children. And so they ran this story, and there's a great scene in this movie. It's a painful movie to watch. It's an important movie to watch, and it's so well told. But there's a very painful scene where at the end, they're about to run this story, and all of the reporters are full of uh, you know, fight, and they're really ready to get, stick, it to, stick it to them. And then somebody who's the lead, uh, you know, the lead on the story says, well, what about us? How come we didn't say it? And everybody begins to fight. What do you mean we didn't say? We didn't know. We didn't know. It turns out they did know. But they had blinders on. They'd known about the story for years. But they were part of the problem. And so that's part of what it means to repent. And then there's this one line, and I think it's applicable for all of us. In so many ways, one outsider says in the midst of that conversation, he says, sometimes it's easy to forget that we spend most of our time stumbling around in the dark. Suddenly a light gets turned on and there's a fair share of blame to go around. Humanity has been stumbling around in the dark and we will continue to stumble around in the dark. But there's a light that's come in the world and that's Jesus. And nobody owns Jesus. But that light shines into every crevice of this world and into your lives. Repentance is just simply acknowledging and turning to him. Saying, guide me, teach me. Walk with me in this and through this. And that's what it is to be a follower of Christ. That's what it is to be a part of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your grace. I am so thankful that you don't let us get too comfortable. Thank you, thank you Lord, that you don't leave us as children, but you help us grow to be mature followers of your Son. Lord, I pray to that end that this teaching is helpful. Uh, continue to teach us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a time to offer up our hearts and our gifts. Uh, let's do that as we continue.